You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. People say being a college president is similar to the job of a CEO. It requires business acumen and strategizing, media training, and the ability to court funders. But as one of today's guests says, no five-year-old grows up wanting to be a university president. So what attracts people to the job to begin with? And with what seems like an endless onslaught of crises, from COVID recovery to hostile immigration policies, the great resignation and staff burnout, why would anybody want it? Coming up in this episode, we speak with Joy Johnson, the president of Simon Fraser University, about how she's tackling some of the big challenges of university leadership and why she thinks it's a pretty fantastic job and a privilege to do. But first, let's discuss how the requirements of a university leader have changed. My guest, John McNaughton, an associate professor and associate department chair in the Texas Tech University College of Education, looks at what university presidents have to do now compared to their predecessors 40 years ago. And he says that instead of leaders being like CEOs and universities like corporations, he likens universities to cities or nation states, with presidents serving as mayors who govern over a lot of different areas while still recognizing that there's a group above them who will guide their decisions. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You are a researcher into leadership in general at Texas Tech. Um, I know, I'm sure you've you've probably looked at leadership in higher education uh, just by virtue of being an academic yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about how the job of university president or even some of the higher echelons of university leadership, how that job has maybe changed over the past, say, four decades or so? Yeah, sure thing. And it's it's great to be here with you. And thanks for the invitation. And um, I always really enjoy talking about higher education leadership, because I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings out there about it, but also it has changed. Right. And so when we think about the last 40 years, I don't know that I mean, the job has definitely changed. Right. I think technology and I think that, you know, kind of the role of some parts of, of higher education in terms of, you know, athletics and, and kind of the move to online. I think that's changed the way that presidents have to engage with their institutions. But I think the actual things they do are still somewhat similar, right? They're very external facing. They're looking at donors and fundraising. Um, They have to make sure that the institution is financially stable. Uh, There's, you know, kind of this, the the people they work with in terms of students, faculty, staff, um, those kind of interactions I think have been the same. When I think about the biggest changes, I think it's how they engage with that. Right. So if you think about one, they are much more public facing. Um, 20 years ago, I think if there was a crisis, university presidents weren't expected to talk about it. Right. Mm. Like they were they were focused on the university, whereas now, you know, if we have a crisis, a societal crisis, if there's a, you know, a, a terrorism attack or if there's a tragedy, even if it's not in their state, um, oftentimes they're expected to make a statement about it. And, and so mm-hmm. that's something that, you know, in my own research, I've, I've done some work on where presidents feel the pressure now that they are not just institutional leaders, they're public facing kind of speakers. They have to share the perspectives of themselves of the president. 
but also to kind of share the perspective of their institution. And also perhaps comment on that to the university community. I'm thinking about the murder of George Floyd as a, as a yeah. most recent example of universities really needing to and perhaps feeling the need to comment on that and put out a, a statement about that. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's interesting, right? Because no statement is almost the same as sending a statement now, mm. right? Where, mm. you know, in some of the work that I've done in talking to faculty and staff, if the president doesn't say anything, they start to perceive that the president doesn't care. And whereas I think, you know, 10, I'd say even 10, maybe 15 years ago, that was not the case, right? Like we didn't expect the president to talk about these kind of societal issues and the impact it might have on their institutions. Part of the reason why I asked that question was just thinking about um, funding structures. And I know that that's had a huge change in the U.S. specifically, but also over here in the U.K. And I know in other big higher education systems around the world. And it seems like those stakeholders that universities have have shifted quite a bit, um, much more focus on fundraising, much more focus on alumni and donors. Is that is that a fair observation? Yeah, I think it's a fair observation. I mean, I think when you think globally, there's some countries who have adopted like the tuition model that has really driven the United States system. Um, but I think overall, you're right that the focus on external dollars has definitely increased. And I, and I think it relates to part of the perception of higher education as a private good, right? That I think presidents now have to recognize that the, the public sentiment towards higher education has changed. You know, we used to have that quote, right, that higher education is the great equalizer. Well, that might be true, but there's a lot of other paths. And I think that some people are saying higher education is too expensive. It's, it's, it's too much time. And so there's kind of presidents now have that role to be kind of the champion, the defender of the faith, if you will, of the role of higher education. I think one of the other things that's really changed is that institutional presidents, and this kind of relates to the first one, but, but now they have to deal with things at a global of a global nature, right? I mean, and this is true, especially in institutions in the UK, in the United States, um, what I would call institutions that have a lot of international pull as opposed to international, you know, kind of push into other countries. Things that happen in China or things that happen in India, things that happen in Latin America, they, they impact our institutions. And so institutional leaders now have to acknowledge that and they have to be more concerned for international students, but they also just have to recognize their role in a global economy. I think one of the biggest issues that, that you know, kind of presidents have to deal with now, but they didn't have to before is immigration, right? Whereas there's a lot of countries now that are becoming very insular and trying changing their immigration policies. Well, that impacts enrollment, that impacts the livelihood of the institution to a lot of ways, and the exposure of students um, to, to diverse perspectives. We've talked quite a bit about how broad this brief is. You, you mentioned it earlier, public-facing stuff, government relations, corresponding with students of all levels and ages, alumni, research strategy. In your perspective of observing leadership in general, are there any other sectors that have where the top the person in the top job has such a broad brief? And are there any perhaps lessons that higher education can learn from those sectors? You know, what's interesting is I think there are other sectors where you do see this kind of broad array of responsibilities, but most of the time it is focused in on a specific thing, right? You know, we're focused in on a specific product or a specific market. Um, whereas higher ed, it does have kind of a broader view because we deal a lot with people right, with teaching and education. But we also, you know, especially for large research institutions, there's innovation and there's patents and mm -hmm. there's legal issues. 
um, which becomes more on that kind of broad, you know, kind of global company perspective. I think the thing that sets higher education apart is that they're also just embedded in these communities. And, and so I actually, I, I wrote a paper a while back about, uh, with a colleague, Ryan Litzy, called Academic Municipalities. And our argument was that while some scholars talk about higher education as businesses, I think they actually more look a little bit more like cities or states or, you know, countries with a governor or, or a mayor, right, who has to worry about the public works. They have to worry about the education of the kids. They have to worry about, um, you know, power getting to them. I mean, there's some universities now that have their own power plants, right? And so, you know, they have this broad array. And so, and the other thing that makes higher education interesting is the president is not kind of where all decisions end, right? Similar with a company where you have a board of directors, a lot of decisions the president makes might be second-guessed by that board, right? And so, so for me, I think that they're more akin to like a city or a nation or a state where they, they have to kind of govern a lot of different areas, but they also have to acknowledge that there's still a group above them that's going to kind of guide some of those decisions, right? Another facet of that could also be the way that universities really want to reflect society, both in their student body, who they're getting to teach the students, what their students look like and think like, um, and then also the topics that they're covering and how they're responding to that. You know, I, I just wanted to add, I, I do think another thing we have to remember is that higher education also has like a pretty big team, right? So while the president does have all these things in their brief, like they also, that, and that's something that's changed over 40 years, right? Is a number of vice presidents we have, you know, where now we have a chief of staff where that wasn't a thing really 20, 30 years ago. Um, now we have a vice president that focuses on students. And so I think that also helps. And you see that in companies as well, right? Like you have a marketing vice president and you have a product vice president, a user experience. And so I think that's something that's changed, but also something in the higher ed space that um, a lot of times presidents aren't prepared to handle that executive team model. Um, but that's something that exists there as well. That is quite interesting because oftentimes the pathway to this leadership position comes through an, an academic an academic pathway. So you might be an excellent researcher, you might be able to lead a lab even, but then actually when you're at the top of the heap here and you have a huge list of vice presidents that you've got to work with and also a board of governors that you've got to answer to, it, it must be a, a massive just shift in terms of perspective and being able to speak to those different groups. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and again, it, it goes when you come, if you come through the academic side, which like you said, is the way most presidents come, there's kind of this first among equals perspective, right? That, you know, I'm working with faculty that have, you know, I've, I've got to, you know, they have control, they're individual contributors as well. And, and so I think that kind of makes taking and leading a team sometimes a positive, but also a challenge because I need to remember that I need to make the decision and I have some of my team that need me to make decisions that they can then go and act. Looking at the current landscape in which university presidents are operating, and you've written a little bit about the post-COVID or post-COVID crisis period that we're in, in terms of what, what higher education leadership requires at this mo moment. But university presidents are facing declines in public trust in higher education, threats to democracy, industrial action, a student mental health epidemic. What would you say, is there a specific style of leadership or a type of leader that the moment requires? Yeah, I think one of the first things that we need right now is presidents with integrity that are, are going to kind of come with a, a, a I, know, I know that moral can be nor, normative, but trying to do the right thing and, and doing it with passion and compassion, 
right? You know, we talk about the student health epidemic. I mean, the same could be said with faculty and staff, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there is a lot of burnout right now, the great resignation. I mean, this is happening. I, I, you know, and I know that, you know, this isn't, you know, an academic study, but just a number of my colleagues from across the United States and other parts of the world that have just left academia um, because of some of that pressure and some of that, you know, kind of that mental health challenge we're talking about right now. So I think integrity and compassion. I think we also need presidents that are visionary. Um, you mentioned I, I have written a few articles for, for you know, the campus. And, and one of the articles that I wrote was actually, it came with a quote from one of the presidents we spoke to that said, you know, you can be, either be the architect of change or its victim. And I think that as presidents, we need presidents that have vision and they're working towards that vision. Because without that, I think what we end up is a lot of reactionary presidents that just kind of wait for things to hit them and then they respond, which isn't terrible, but it's not great leadership, right? And I think we need great leadership with that visionary compassion integrity um, to move us forward through this next, you know, I, I think these next 10, 15 years are going to be a little turbulent. Um, you know, we're going to have some economic challenges, no doubt about it, coming up. Um, we are still coming back from COVID, right, in terms of what does higher education look like after that. Um, there was just an article today in the New York Times that talked about learning loss, which is a global problem after COVID. And, and that group of kids isn't going to be here for another three or four or five years. And so what is that going to look like for higher ed? And so I think we need those visionary presidents that are ready to handle some of these more complex challenges. Just, just based on those two or three variables that you just listed there that are definitely coming our way in terms of economic issues and the COVID generation that are coming up, are the days of the five-year strategy that university presidents set out, are those days gone? And how, how is it possible to be a visionary leader whenever there are hmm. so many uncertainties coming down the pike? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's something I haven't thought a lot about and, and something now I'm going to take back and think <laughs> about. And I hope that, you know, your listeners do as well. I would say this, I think when I talk visionary leadership, I, I really am getting at core values. And, and so presidents having core values that they're working towards and the strategies to getting there, whether it's a year, whether it's three years, five years, 10 years, I do think they need to be malleable because the students of today are gonna have a lot of similarities to the students of tomorrow, but they're also gonna have some differences. And if we're so ingrained that, well, this is what online education is, we're not going to be ready for that, right? We're not going to be ready to help those students in the best way possible. Is there any anything missing missing from the current skill set within the current um, group of higher education leaders? Um, yeah, and that, that's a hard one to pin down just because globally the, the process to becoming a president is very different. Um, and even within the United States, you know, I mean, we have kind of a, an ebb and flow of presidents that come from the corporate sector, presidents that come through academia, student services, um, and so we have a, a real kind of adjustment and change there. But I think in terms of skill sets that, that most leaders need more support with, one of them is this idea of communication, both in terms of how to communicate, but also when to communicate. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I did a, a study. It was after the 2016 U.S. presidential election here in the United States. And, and that, to me, was one of the first times that all presidents across the country felt the need to communicate about something that wasn't um, a, a, a tragedy, right? But they felt the need to communicate about kind of this election and how contentious it had been and how we're going to move forward. And I think that was something that, you know, presidents felt pressure to do. I think there were some presidents who were out in front of it and others who were more reactionary to it. And so I think leaders need to know, when do my students need me to communicate to them? When do my faculty and staff need more information? 
um, having that skill would be really critical. I think a lot of presidents also are going to need more kind of guidance on how to kind of do this, what we just were barely talking about, vision setting and goal setting, right? I think presidents, like you said, I may have led a lab or I may have led my department and I may set enrollment targets or I may set, you know, kind of more, I would say, logistic goals. But what about goals about kind of the, the core of our, our higher education institution, more mission standard goals, right? How am I going to get there? Um, so I think presidents need some support and help with that. And then the, the last one that I'll mention is I do think more presidents need more experiences with students. Um, I think that when we talk about the student mental health crisis, I think there's a lot of institutional leaders who believe it from a numeric standpoint. They can look at the number of their students that go to counseling services. But until you like get down and, and get to meet with students and have more engagement with students and kind of see the toll that that has on them, it's, it's harder to have the compassion that I think presidents need to have. And it's harder to kind of see more innovative solutions. And so I think more experiences with students are, are critical for, for presidents to lead us into this next generation. Is there any advice that you would offer to any aspiring university leaders out there listening to this podcast? Yeah. Um, so one piece of advice that I would, I would definitely give is, you know, find a good team and trust your team. You know, like I said, higher education has changed. That's one way it's changed in 40 years is the team mentality, the executive team a president has. And so make sure you're finding that good team that can help you to be your best. Another thing I would probably, you know, kind of give in terms of advice is don't be discouraged. Higher education has been around a long time. Um, Mike Bastido, who's at the University of Michigan, he always jokes around about how you know, there's, you know, we always talk about higher education becoming more like businesses. And he jokes that, well, actually, businesses are becoming more like higher education with their campuses and their, you know, the way that they engage with their, their employees. Mm. Regardless of however you think about it, higher education institutions have been around a lot longer than most businesses, right? They're survivors. And so higher education is going to survive. And so don't be discouraged. But that doesn't mean that we can sit back right? We still have to be proactive and we have to be pushing forward and being that architect of change, right? Um, and looking for ways that we can get better. And so that'd be the second thing. And then just the, the last thing I would say is, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, presidency, more experience with students. I think we also need to make sure that our decisions are focused on not only the survival of our institution, but what is best for society and best for the students that we serve. And, and that's something that, you know, if we can ask ourselves that question and the decisions we make, I think we'll be much better off. On the topic of choosing a team, don't surround yourself with like-minded people or psychophants, right? Make sure that they're people who are going to challenge you, who might hold contrary views to you, but that are going to have that shared vision and perhaps moral compass. Yeah, you know, I, I think having those core values, at least, and maybe we don't have the same ones, but we understand what ones we're going to work on together. And, and I think, you know, kind of related to your point is this idea of diversity in higher education leadership, right? And like you said, we need multiple perspectives. And I think sometimes when we talk about diversity, you know, we can talk about gender diversity, racial and ethnic diversity. Those are important, but we need to remember why they're important. They're important because when we have those kinds of differences, often we've had different lived experiences. And often that helps us to kind of see things in different ways. And so be more focused on, on how people are coming at this with different perspectives and different ideas, um, because that'll help us get to the best idea. Just final question for you, John, on that. Why do you think it is such a pernicious problem in higher education leadership that there's not more diversity? 
Yeah, and I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, right? Like, <laughs> I think that's a very complex answer. Um, I, I just came back from a conference and, and was talking to a couple of colleagues about this very question. And I think one of the, one of the reasons is there's definitely a pipeline issue, right? There is systemic racism and sexism, you know, in, in, a, in most organizations. It, it's there, right? That, you know, I mean, and the prime example of that, right, is, is countries and organizations that still don't have very good maternity leave, right? Because that impacts women differently than it impacts men, and, and the fact that we're still not kind of coming to an agreement on what that looks like that's humane and supportive um, and doesn't harm women, I think, is, is kind of telling that this exists, right? And so I think we have these pipeline issues that we need to be constantly addressing at multiple levels, right? The early part of the pipeline and with leadership development programs at the later part of the pipeline. And then I think we also, something that I think we don't talk enough about is we have a lot of leaders that are holding on. Right. We have a generation of leaders, um, whether it's for economic reasons or, or whatever it may be. We have kind of a, you know, I, at least for me, I think for the last 15 years in the United States, I've seen article after article about the aging college presidency. And there's going to be this massive increase of young presidents. That just hasn't happened. Right. And I think it's because we have a lot of older presidents that are hanging on. Um, and so I think we as leaders in higher ed need to do more to develop and support leaders, um, diverse leaders and just younger leaders and then be willing to step back, right? Some countries across the world, um, particularly there's been some in Brazil and institutions in Brazil that I've worked with, where there's a limit on how long you can be the president. And I think sometimes that's helpful, right? Because it forces transition and forces new ideas and new leadership. Sure, it, it, it puts a time limit on something. So it encourages people to, to get the job done while they've got the short period of time and then get out of the way so someone else can step in. John, thank you so much for your time and educating us all about the history of higher education leadership and explaining a little bit more about why things are the way they are and, and what sorts of challenges are coming up in the future. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and I look forward to kind of, if there's any questions or anything, happy to connect with people. Now on to the mayor of the city of Simon Fraser University in Canada, Joy Johnson. Joy has been president of Simon Fraser since 2020, and before that was its first female vice president of research. She's a nurse by training and has served as a scientific director for the Institute of Gender and Health of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. In this interview, she tells us how she approaches sticky issues like housing and balancing international travel with climate change goals. And she tells us what career advice she'd give her younger self. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are a Canadian native. You were the first female vice president for research at Simon Fraser, which you started that job in 2014. You've since become vice chancellor, which you started that role in 2020. Did you always intend to climb the career ladder in this way? Tell us a little bit about your, your journey to becoming vice chancellor. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. And it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, I've always been a person who um, moves into a role and then starts to eventually think about what their next move might be. 
So um, I, I recently gave it a address to our graduating class and said, no five-year-old says I want to be a university president. Um, uh, you know, it, it is something that kind of one starts to see on the horizon. And so um, I had been uh, in a role um, with our Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and that role was ending. And I thought, oh, vice president research would be an interesting next step. And so I took that step. And then while in that role, started to think, oh, well, being a vice chancellor, uh, being a chan- uh, you know, and president of a university would be a very interesting opportunity as well. And so um, I wouldn't say it was always in my sights, but it emerged on my sights as I started to take on different, different roles. Hmm. I, I want to get into kind of how that looked for you and unpick that a little bit. But um, I want to just kind of start on perhaps some topics that might be familiar for university presidents and vice chancellors around the world. The first one is about um, this tension between serving domestic students and international students. And I know in the Canadian sector, um, it is there is a high level of international students because it's a great country to study in, but also international students are charged a higher fee, and so they supplement a lot of the university activities. How are you kind of navigating that tension of serving domestic students, but then also perhaps needing those international student fees? Yeah, and um, you're right, there are some tensions there. Uh, We um, do recognize, first of all, that international students bring so much to our university. In terms of their perspectives, um, they have to internationalize our campus. And so they're very valuable as learners in our community. Um, You're also correct that they have become an important source of revenue. So maybe a couple of things within the Canadian context. Number one, we are um, given a grant from the provincial government through taxpayer dollars um, to um, have a particular number of domestic students. So we have a quota of number of students that we should enroll. uh, And this is funded through um, um, the government system through taxpayers. And it's always been our thinking that when you bring in an international student who hasn't, whose family hasn't contributed to that tax base, it's only fair that they would be charged additional fees. Um, and so that's really the philosophy behind um, additional revenue for international students is that they haven't contributed to our country to the degree that other um, um, uh, you know, citizens of Canada have. Now, um, that being said, there is a limit, and we recognize that. There's a limit on, in two ways. There's a limit in the number of international students that we should bring into the university, in part because some of them, not all, some of them re- require additional supports. Uh, and we want to make sure that they are successful within the university system. Um, but I think there's also a limit on how much we can charge. Um, and so we are very carefully looking at um, what capacity students have. Um, we're always looking at um, um, making sure, looking at you know, other universities across Canada and globally at, at what fees are set at. But the other thing we're doing more and more is recognizing that um, some international students from some countries will never be able to pay these fees and so are looking for other mechanisms through scholarships and bursaries so that we can continue to have a diversity of international students coming to Simon Fraser University. So it's a bit of a balance always. It's a, it's a discussion um, that we're having quite frequently um, and I think it's just trying to get that balance right. And does that discussion happen within the political sphere in Canada? And if so, how how do you navigate that as a leader? 
It does happen within the political sphere um, on on a few on a few um, levels. Um, I would say f- nationally, federally, for us, uh, it comes into play as we start to talk about visa processing for our international students, and mm-hmm. and that is certainly a concern. Um, there also, um, f- for example, recently was a concern about particularly private universities, colleges within Canada. Um, taking advantage of international students. Um, and so there's a dynamic there. Um, this is certainly not the case at Simon Fraser University. We do not have those kinds of complaints, but we do recognize that there are some bad actors out there and we need to make sure that we continue to, make, to, to support international students and provide them with a quality education. And then I'd say provincially as well, um, because our province funds um, universities, we're part of a public sector. Um, you know, they have an interest in making sure that we continue to have a quality education. So they have an interest, they haven't dictated numbers, but they have an interest in terms of that mix as well. So it is complex. And then finally, I also would say, Sarah, domestically, in terms of our cities, our municipalities, mm-hmm. they also have a stake in that, um, as you know, uh, students take up um, low market housing. And, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, we need to also make sure that um, we're thinking about uh, the low rental housing and potentially flooding of that with students and really not allowing families and other individuals and communities to have access to that housing. So it's complex on many levels again, and uh, mm-hmm. we're always negotiating um, um, through those trying to, to find win-wins. Hmm. Let's let's go on to the the housing topic. This is something that comes up quite a bit whenever I hear university leaders talking right across the gamut from San Diego to Vancouver, which is where one of your campuses is located, obviously in London, but in cities around the UK. There is a big issue with affordable housing and the cost of housing contributing to rising tuition fees. How are you approaching this issue as a leader? Uh, so you're correct. Um, affordability is a top of mind issue for us at Simon Fraser University. And part of that is uh, the availability of housing. So um, we um, are very fortunate in that we do have land, uh, particularly on our Burnaby Mountain campus, and would like to build more housing. And are in discussions with the government uh, about that. Um, in Canada, it's interesting, in British Columbia, the province we're in, um, we this is probably a little bit down the rabbit hole, but we actually cannot have debt. Um, We roll up into the federal accounting system and they don't want to have more debt on their books, so they don't let us take on debt. So it's not like I can go out and build a residence tomorrow. I need to find funds. um, And the government has been in conversation about providing those funds, loaning them to us um, so that we can build housing. And that has been a win-win. We've done one phase of housing in this model and would like to see it continued. And it's a win-win because it takes students out of the low rental housing market, as I've just said. Um, And also, um, I think many students want, particularly in their first couple of years, want to live on campus. And Mm -hmm. so that also is a great opportunity. I will say we're also talking to our municipalities about this because they also see the win-win in this, in that they're interested in that whole housing dynamic. And so we're looking at different models with them as well about ways in which they might invest in housing for us and get paid back over time. So trying to be creative um, given the constraints that we have around borrowing. 
Um, um, but it certainly is our intention to build more housing here on Burnaby Mountain. Um, but also we're looking at building housing uh, in, on our Surrey campus as well, um, because right now we have no student housing there. And I think there's growing demand uh, in Surrey as well. You mentioned um, cities and how important um, international students are to to the cities and also kind of the role that cities play in this accommodation um, question. One thing that Simon Fraser ranks well in uh, in the Times Higher Education Impact Rankings is for sustainable cities and communities. You also rank in the top 20 for climate action and for peace, justice, and strong institutions and for SCG 17, which is the overall um, SCG ranking. Tell me a little bit about how um, sustainability factors into your institutional mission and your, your leadership approach. It's a fantastic question. We're right in the midst of strategic planning right now for SFU. And I would Great. say that sustainability is, um, we're hearing from our community, um, both internal and external communities, that sustainability is, is, will continue to be very much at the core of the work that we do. Um, a few things on that front. One is we've re recently developed uh, a large proposal um, that we're seeking federal funding for, a large amount of federal funding for, um, called Community-Centered Climate Innovation. And we have 80 partners, um, both municipalities, but industry and other community partners, First Nation partners working with us um, because we recognize that the solutions around climate um, um, innovation uh, need to happen on the ground. And uh, so it means policy, it means, you know, um, um, uptake within communities, thinking about um, uh, bespoke programs into communities as well. And so with the three municipalities that we have reached into certainly are involved, and that's Surrey, Burnaby, and Vancouver. Um, but we're looking at new models, uh, ways that we can um, contribute uh, to uh, sustainability, particularly um, the climate emergency. Uh, and we've and and what's so exciting for me about this initiative is we have eight faculties at Simon Fraser University, and every one of those faculties is involved in this initiative. Mm. Um, so that's because this is interdisciplinary. It's about policy. It's about our creative arts. It's about thinking about new ways of doing work and um, helping to explain um, the importance of this work. So um, I, I really see that initiative um, really growing over time. Um, so that's, I think, one example. The other is we are also seeing more and more opportunities. For example, with the um, uh, city of Burnaby, um, they have created um, a joint innovation center with us um, focused on um, matters for the city, many of them related to sustainability, everything from where to put bike lanes in the city um, to how to think about transport in new ways, um, walkability, etc. And they, um, what's wonderful about this initiative is the city recognizes that they can benefit so much from the expertise of our faculty and graduate students. And so having a co-located innovation hub that is really serving the needs of the city is again a win-win and really part of what we love to do and have continued to do at SFU in terms of being an engaged university. Hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression about Canada and especially about British Columbia that the sustainability issue is so much more front of mind and just kind of more widely understood and accepted as a, as a real and urgent issue that everybody needs to kind of pile in together and, and work on. Is that true? And, and have there been any challenges that you faced in kind of getting everybody at the institution on board and kind of behind this common mission? And, and how did you maybe tackle that? 
I would say um, in British Columbia, that is correct. Um, you know, we are um, the home of the birth of Greenpeace. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I would say our provincial government has um, indicated that the, the greening of the economy is a priority. And I would also say, um, particularly in British Columbia, we have experienced the direct effects of climate change, both in terms of wildfires, uh, in terms of floods, um, and in terms of what was referred to as a heat dome, um, on really unprecedented heat uh, two summers ago. And so uh, we're, we are living it, and I think the community has woken up to the fact that this is something that everyone has to get on board uh, with. Uh, in terms of our faculty, in terms of um, the university as a whole, um, I would say one of the great, greatest uh, impetus for moving forward in this regard is our students. They are demanding um, that we uh, move forward uh, and think about sustainability and cl- the climate emergency in particular. And we have taken um, a number of steps as a, as a university in terms of our own uh, footprint, um, joining the Race to Zero, making very clear commitments um, around our um, uh, carbon emissions as well. Um, But I would also say that the faculty are getting on board with this. They recognize, even if they're studying, you know, history of, you know, the 1800s, um, that that they are living in a time and a place where this is the existential issue of our day. And, um, and I think also a recognition that no matter what your discipline, be it philosophy, history, etc., there is a bearing um, on, um, on where we have landed today and uh, that can contribute to our thinking about how to get our, ourselves out of this mess. So I would say in general, there has been very broad support. There always will be individuals who, you know, um, are more interested in their very niche particular areas, but that's the, that's the beauty of a university uh, mm. is, is also um, the diversity of viewpoints, etc. And just quickly, how are you... How are you squaring? One of the biggest contributors to university admissions is is flights and travel. How are you squaring your sustainability mission with increased number of international students and even travel for your faculty to conferences and overseas? It's interesting. We are watching our colleagues across Canada. One of the challenges that we have, Sarah, is that um, we're far away from everybody. (laughs) And, um, and but we also recognize that, uh, and so we do rely on flights to be very, very clear. Um, and uh, I would say it is something that we are being much more mindful about. We have not yet taken a step of limiting um, our faculty or staff's flights, um, but it is something that we are bearing in mind. And I think we are seeing a lot more um, thoughtfulness uh, about um, the use of air travel. Um, uh, it's interesting, um, uh, the, cha- the chancellor of our university um, is the CEO of the airport authority, YVR, and um, she is also really working hard uh, to, green, to create uh, the greenest airport, and I think she's well on her way. But also um, a lot of innovation we're seeing happening in air travel, and I imagine that we will be seeing biofuel as well as hydrogen-fueled jets in the near future, and that's the other thing we need to work on is the innovation side of things. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, just kind of the the notion of being a university leader and you've been in the role, I mean, you've been a university leader for a while now, but you've been in the top spot for about two years now. Why would somebody want to be a university leader? Well, I think it's a fantastic job and a privilege. And, um, uh, and it is, I mean, there are days, let's face it, there are days you feel a little bit under the gun. 
But, you know, one thing, Sarah, I would say is um, it is about teamwork. Um, being a university leader, a president, it's a, it's a team sport. And um, if you've got great colleagues, you do feel well supported. And so it is not an isolated job. I just think that's important to bear in mind. <clears throat> and I would also say um, that it's a privilege. Um, I learn something every day. Uh, I get exposed to great researchers. I get exposed to passionate community members. Um, I get exposed to students who are really, I mean, there's nothing better than attending a graduation and seeing students moving forward with their futures, um, solidly grounded um, in, in, in an excellent education. So those are all like, you know, you couldn't ask for more. And the, the diversity of the work is also a real pleasure. I mean, it's government relations, it's donor relations, it's, um, it's HR, it's, um, it's strategy, it's all of those things. So um, that's, I think, part of what I find really exciting about the role is the diversity uh, of opportunities as well. I wonder if there were um, any challenges that you faced being a, a woman leader in this sector where there are so few female leaders. Any challenges you specifically faced that, that you perhaps wouldn't want the next generation of female leaders behind you to also struggle with? Well, um, make no mistake, I do think that, um, you know, misogyny is live and well, um, and people's um, attitudes about what a leader looks like, um, I see it at play. Um, you know, that sense on occasion of invisibility when you're at a meeting, um, that sense that you might not be taken as seriously. I've been in that exact same situation so many women have been. You make a suggestion, it gets discounted. Two minutes later, a man makes the same suggestion, and it's considered brilliant. Um, you know, those are, I think, continue to be part of our society. Um, there are, you know, we've made some progress in terms of university presidents in Canada, slow but sure. Um, but I would say in terms of top tier research universities, um, the numbers are quite few and far between. And so there is work to be done there. And so what I would hope for is, um, you know, a continue. We've made progress, um, but I think there is an assumption out there that the work is done. And it certainly is not. There is more work to be done um, to make sure that women um, see themselves um, as being able to take on this role and then are supported in the role. And just final question for you, Joy. What advice would you give to your younger self? What leadership advice would you give her? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think um, my advice to my younger self would be it's going to be okay. <laughs> um, I think we all... You know, we all have imposter syndrome. Um, I, I certainly recognize that. We all think, well, maybe I shouldn't or couldn't or wouldn't. Um, and, uh, I, 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 and I worried a lot about putting myself out there um, early on in my career. Um, but I also say um, to those coming up um, uh, and thinking about opportunities that you don't get a job, you don't apply for, um, you, you have to put yourself out there. And um, you have to take risks. And, um, I, and I probably, I guess, would have taken a few more risks uh, earlier on. Um, but it just took me a while to kind of get my feet under me. So I guess that would be the, the advice I would give myself. Take risks. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks to John and Joy for joining us. We're working on the 2023 podcast program, so if you've got any ideas you'd like us to cover, get in touch at sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com. We'll see you next time. 
You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.